How's it going, everybody? You're listening to The Raven's Grove. I'm your host, Dahi, and today we're going to be diving once more into the world of facts with our long-running fact dump series. More specifically, we're going to be looking at some facts related to one of my all-time favorite ancient cultures, the Norsemen, a.k.a. the Vikings. As many of you may know, I actually am a a Norse Celtic pagan, so I believe in the Norse and Celtic gods, and the Vikings are one of my favorite of all-time ancient cultures, so this is a special one for me. Now, before I go any further, this episode of The Raven's Grove features the following trigger warnings. Supernatural slash horror mentions, crime mentions, weapon mentions, warfare mentions, gore mentions, abuse mentions, and murder mentions. So if any of those are in any way a trigger for you, please give this episode a miss. So to kick things off, did you know that Norse culture viewed in mathematics as a form of magic? Yeah, I'm serious. See, magic in Norse society was an inherently female practice, to the point that several of the most powerful insults to a Norseman's masculinity were basically calling him a magic user. Now, on a separate note, this actually raises a very interesting dichotomy in cultural values because Odin, chief god of the Aesir, one of the most important and valued gods in the Norse pantheon, was a master of the form of magic known as Seder, which is an inherently female form of magic in nature, but that's a story for another time. Anyways, maths was viewed as a form of magic by all society, which is why that women were the ones who were in total control of anything to do with finances and money. See, women were already considered magic in Norse society because of a bunch of reasons, and so for the Norse, it was a logical step to equate maths and magic, and as such, you did not ever want to really annoy a woman who had control of your finances, but that's I'll get to more on that later. Fact number two is also about women in the Viking Age. See, compared to other cultures and societies in Europe at the time, women in Viking-era Scandinavia and Iceland had far more rights than their Frankish or Saxon counterparts. For example, Viking women could legally own property, they had an equal vote in any democratic decisions in the community, and they could represent themselves in a court of law. Not only that, divorce was remarkably common in Viking society, but while there, was no, uh, while there was considerable stigma for divorced men, there was no such stigma for divorced women. Basically, to be a divorced man in Viking-era Scandinavia was a social equivalent of having a sign around your neck that said, I am unable to keep my wife happy and therefore am a failure as a man. The best part about women's rights in Viking culture? Domestic abuse was treated extremely harshly. If a Viking man insulted his wife in public, he would have to pay her a wedding guild and a blood payment equal to that he would have to pay if he had insulted a man of equal rank to himself. If he did it three times, she was on a bound to divorce him, and if you got divorced you and you were a woman, you were legally allowed to demand the entirety of your dowry back upon the divorce, oral equivalent value of goods or coin, and he, your ex-husband would be able to do nothing about it. If the husband actually hit her in public, he would face either death or even worse, being labelled a Nithingar and being sent into exile. Now you might be thinking, Dahi, how can exile be worse than death? Well, in Viking era society, everything was done as part of a group called a warband. You literally lived, slept, ate, drank, and died as part of a warband. They were, the entirety of life was in these very small, very tight-knit communities. As such, to be exiled was the worst possible punishment, and to be labeled a Nithinger was the most serious insult possible to a Norseman. Literally translated, it means Oatbreaker, but believe me, there are very few insults in Old Norse that can come close to its level of power as a pure insult. 
See, if you were labeled an Ethinger, then anyone who saw you on the road and recognized you was not only allowed, but outright obligated to attack and try and kill you on sight. Not only that, if a slave, and bear in mind, slaves had no rights at all in North society. If a slave killed you, they would automatically be granted their freedom and would gain freeborn status and a voice in the community. In fact, if a Norseman was shown to be abusive to his wife, she was legally allowed to castrate him and leave him to die, and she would face no repercussions, legal or otherwise, for doing this. Now, fact number three is also about old Norse insults, and to be honest, they're some of my favorites in any language. Now, one thing that you need to understand from the start is that the Norse did not like being insulted. Remember that part about a Norseman insulting his wife in public? Well, that was the same as if he had insulted a man in public. The first time, the insulter would have to pay a fine, Second time, the fine would be substantially larger. Three times, and the only way to settle it was with a home gang, a duel to the death. And this was no small matter either. A home gang would take place on a, a, on a location decided by the referee, usually on an island somewhere, who would also supply the weapons and shields the combatants would use. However, some insults were so powerful, they bypassed the pain and the fines part and went straight to home gang status, and there were a very slight few insults that, if unwarranted or untrue, would legally allow the insulted party to kill the offender on the spot without any legal repercussions if they could be proved it. Now, obviously, this is a very complicated system of conduct, so how do you air grievances without resorting to violence? Well, there was a way to legally insult someone without the threat of bloodshed, and it was called a flighting. A flighting is an ritualized insult duel, and it's a direct ancestor of the modern-day rap battle. See, the two opponents stand just out of arm's reach of each other, and each takes turns insulting the other. A referee is on hand to make sure not just that it's a fair duel, but also to act as a judge. You see, to win a flighting duel, you need a number of things. Firstly, you need to be eloquent in your insults. Secondly, you need to match the cadence and rhythm of your opponent's insults as best you can. And third, you had to make your opponent look as stupid and bad as you possibly can. Now, this is actually an interesting point because if you're if someone insulted you and you're a guest in someone's home, that person who insulted you, if they were, say, um, let's say you're at a feast, right? And you are a guest at that Lord's home. If the Lord's retainer, almost like a man-at-arms, almost like a, um, I guess you could say, assistant type person, if they insulted you, you were on about to respond in kind to that insult. But you had to do it in such a way that the Lord was not insulted. That is a very, very tricky line to walk. And if you want to know more, read Beowulf. It's got a great scene where that actually happens. Now, getting back on track, some topics would be declared off-limits by the referee beforehand, and breaching those rules would immediately disqualify you. But the number one taboo in flighting, you must never touch your opponent. You lay a finger on your opponent in a flighting duel, and not only have you lost, you've dishonored yourself in front of everybody. Flighting duels were often held during feasts, as I mentioned, and they were an excellent way of settling disputes without blood being spilled, because anything said during a flighting duel was left in the duel. To go and start blood feud over what was said in a flighting match was considered a cowardly act, and you would definitely be considered in the wrong to do so. As are some old Norse insults you can actually use that aren't too severe, well, here's three of my favorites. First, there's fifl, spelled F-I-F-U-L, and literally means fool or idiot. Second, there's Eldhusfifl, spelled E-L-D-H-U with an accent, S-F-I-F-L. Literally translated, it means half-fire idiot, and it basically refers to someone who sits around all day saying how great they are, but who never gets off their ass and does anything to prove it. Finally, 
we've got my all-time favorite Old Norse insult, which is Hrafna Sveltir, spelled H-R-A-F-N-A-S-U-E-T-L-T-I with an accent, R, which literally translates as raven starver. And it's a fancy way of calling someone a coward, as in the ravens starve because you would not die or kill on the battlefield. Now, I'm not going to be telling you any of the really serious Old Norse insults because, well, quite a few of them are either not safe for work or they are extremely offensive even in this day and age. And quite frankly, I don't even like using them that much myself. Fact number four is how the Vikings dealt with gut wounds in combat. So if you're squeamish, you might want to skip this part. See, if a warrior was injured with a gut wound in battle, assuming they were able to get to safety and get to a healer, the healer would feed them a soup made of leeks, onions, garlic, and herbs. After a few minutes, the healer would then smell the wound. If they couldn't smell the soup, that meant that the gut wound wasn't as severe as they first thought, and the warrior had a decent chance of surviving. If the healer did smell the soup, it meant that the gut had been punctured and the warrior was going to die. The fact number five is actually to do with the recent film The Northman. Now, I saw this film in the cinemas. It's one of my all-time favorite films. They did an absolutely amazing job with it. It's probably the most historically accurate film I've ever seen in my entire life. And this is speaking as someone who was trained as an archaeologist. Now, there's one scene in it where the main character of Amleth goes up against what's known as a Draugr. Now, this is a bit confusing in the context of the film because Draugr is actually the name of the sword he's trying to get from the burial mound. But a Draugr in Old Norse society and culture is basically the Viking equivalent of a zombie. They often will have a level of intelligence that is fairly high like they will often can possess their former intelligence and personality as they did before they were alive but they are extraordinarily dangerous they are functionally speaking immortal unless killed they will attack and kill and devour the soul of anyone who enters the barrow and there are very very few ways to make sure they stay down now one of the big ways you can make sure that a dragon stays dead or rather, re-dead, as the case may be, because they are undead, bit of a joke, um, is actually to place the decapitated head of the dragon in between its buttocks. I know, it sounds weird, but that is, according to tradition, that is one of the only ways to stop a dragon from reanimating after it's been killed. And you actually see this in the film. Amleth actually does do this to, that, to the dragon. Now... When I saw the film with my friend Rob, he was saying maybe he thought it was just a bit of like a bit of comedy thing, but that's actually legit. And to, for them to have that level of attention to detail in that film, it was it was a real treat. So I'd recommend seeing it if you can. Anyways, that's all for today, folks. Thanks for listening to the Ravens Grove. I've been Dahi. You've been awesome. I'll talk to you in the next episode. See ya.